Hi, and welcome to the 71st Womanthology podcast. My name is Fiona Tatton, and I'll be your host. Womanthology is the digital, magazine, and professional community powered by female energy and ingenuity. We champion equal recognition and reward for everyone, sharing opportunities, ideas, and a deep pool of collective wisdom, supporting each other to be unstoppable. In this, our Women in Science episode, I speak with Maria Rossini, Head of Education at the British Science Association. Maria shares her career journey and, ahead of International Day of Girls and Women in Science, explains why inclusive science is better science. She also shares the project she's working on ahead of British Science Week and beyond. A quick reminder that you sign up for the Womanthology newsletter by filling in your details on the front page of our website. That's womanthology.co.uk. You can also join our LinkedIn community by visiting linkedin.com forward slash company forward slash womanthology and find us on X, Instagram and Facebook. Welcome to the Womanthology podcast. We have with us today Maria Rossini and she is Head of Education at the British Science Association. Welcome to the podcast, Maria. How are you? I'm all right. Lovely to be here. Well, we're very grateful to have you on board, Maria. So, a bit of a funny story for the listeners. We were keen to get you on the podcast, and then all of a sudden, I was working away doing something else, and I got this email saying that you were available. So, literally, I dropped everything, switched on the microphone, we got ready to speak, and here we are. So, we've hopefully got some great questions for you. So, without further ado, we shall dive into these and find out all about you and all the amazing work you're doing making STEM accessible for all young people. So I'm going to start by asking you if I could a bit about your educational background and career to date. So how you got to where you are today. Fab, yeah. So I guess first thing to say is that I probably like many people in life, I don't think I set out age 10 or 15 or 20 to think I want to work as head of education at the British Science Association probably just wasn't even on my radar from when I was little. And the other thing to say is that I don't come from a particularly privileged background. I had free school meals at school. I went to a normal state primary education, state comprehensive, non-selective school for most of my education. And probably at the time, a school that wasn't particularly well off or achieving great things and so my background was not one although my parents had gone to university my dad is disabled and there wasn't a lot of money in the family but there was definitely a value around education my mum was an English teacher but in terms of science nobody really did science in my life so I fell into working in science I was really interested in it as a kid but I was interested in all learning I just was really super interested in knowing more stuff and doing more things um, and even at mid GCSEs I would have said I was probably a bit more artsy but I was interested in science and I did well in science and it was when I was 17 and I dropped out of doing my A-levels and dropped out of school and I ended up on an outreach program um, run by Liverpool John Moores University and it was a two-week residential staying at the university doing science STEM projects in teams 
And at the end of it, we got given a gold crest award, which was issued by the British Science Association. Um, and those two weeks were just phenomenal. I loved it. And I loved the process of working in a team. I loved the idea of solving problems. I loved the people that I met. I met people who were like me, who were interested in similar things to me. And that then led me to go back and do biology, chemistry and Spanish at A-level. Um, I then went off to university, originally studying medicine, but I became disabled during my time at university and decided to transfer away from medicine, did medical microbiology. And then somewhere along the line, did some teacher training, somewhere further down the line. So I love communicating science. And so I, in my late twenties, enrolled on a master's program at Imperial and moved down to London um, for a year and ended up staying in London for about 10 years, longer than 10 years. I did the master's program and whilst I was there, got into the whole world of science communication, ended up working at the Science Museum for a bit at Imperial College, doing my master's um, and then got a role at the British Science Association, working freelance for them originally, and then came onto the team. And I've been working on staff at the BSA since 2012, and I've been head of education since 2016. So quite a journey. I don't know what typical, um, but I'm not sure. I feel particularly typical. What an amazing journey that is, and that's all going back to that course that you did at Liverpool John Moores. What what I your life has been? Had you not found that course, it could have gone a whole not. different direction. I know, and as it turns out, the British Science Association, wherein I work, one of our main programs is the Press Awards Scheme, which was that award that I got, aged seventeen, and that turned it around so I am kind of like the advert for our own program it doesn't get better than that does it really (laughs) like can we have a case study oh it's me (laughs) (laughs) and I, I love it and you speak with such passion about what you're doing as well and sharing all that so in terms of the British Science Association for those people who maybe haven't got a background in science and don't know so much about the can you give us a bit about what the organization's doing what you're doing and the stuff around that as well yeah so the british science association although we are a very long running association started back in the 1830s we are all about making science accessible and relevant and connected to society so it's very easy for scientists to be in one little corner somewhere and for the rest of society to think, oh, that's for the scientists, or for the scientists to think, oh, you know, other people don't understand the science, we're the experts. Um, but actually, it's really important that we all connect up because everybody has something in their life that relies on or could be improved by or that will be threatened by science. Everybody has I think even just the pandemic really showed how we all have to make decisions about do we get vaccinated, do we not get vaccinated, do we wear a face mask, do we not wear a face mask. Science is all around us every day and being able to interact with, to challenge, to question, to adopt the science into your world is really important and it's also really important 
that science understands the wider society and what matters to people and that the voices of everyone in society get to contribute to the science that is being investigated and funded. So that's where the British Science Issue comes in. We have that hub between science and society connecting everything up. I love the way you explain that. So science is all around us and on a day-to-day basis. So if we're wanting to imagine Maria at work, what type of things are we imagining you doing? So I'm the head of education. So in the British Science Association, there's a team of seven of us in the education team overseeing some really big programs. So listeners may have heard of British Science Week, possibly the Crest Award scheme that I just spoke about. So Crest Awards, up to and around 50,000 young people now every year do a Crest Award and get a certificate for doing it. It's all about rewarding young people for, for doing project work in science. So we do a lot around supporting teachers. We have a network of schools in challenging circumstances who we, we give grants to, we work with, we do professional development with, and we also talk to and get them to input on the programs to make sure that whatever we're coming out with, whether it's a new resource or a new funding idea meets the needs of the teachers and the schools that we want to be working with. So on a day-to-day basis, I manage the team. I have a lot of meetings. My son was homesick yesterday and he said to me, Mummy, what do you actually do in your job? Because I see you, you just seem to have meetings and type and send people messages. I'm not sure I'd pay anyone to do any of that. <laughs> A bit harsh there. <laughs> it was harsh, wasn't it? And I thought, gosh, yeah, from the outside. <laughs> like, Nothing like children thinking, to just tell it like it is. <laughs> like many of us, you know, there's a lot that's free computers. So the British Science Association is a national organisation and our staff team is split around the country. So although I used to be based in London, I now am back up about 20 minutes away from where I was born in the northeast. In Gateshead, and so I work from home a lot of the time. I travel down to London, so I get that in my job. But yeah, like many of us, I'm sitting at a computer, and um, it's very varied. So one minute I can be on a call with partners in China discussing the Quest Awards in China, hopping through to a, a training event, teaching some teachers in Manchester about engaging underrepresented audiences, over to another discussion about budget to another about funding bids so it's hugely varied what i do so say slightly more to it than than you've sort of alluded to there but <laughs> <laughs> definitely a lot more than <laughs> from the outside it's just someone working at a computer isn't it <laughs> and in terms of diversity of thought in science why is that so important yeah so i mean Ultimately, science is a way of looking at and understanding the world. And the science that happens is all about the questions that get asked. And it's only a certain proportion of people, a certain type of person is asking the question. Then we will only find out a limited type of answer. And if only a certain type of person is answering the question, then we only get a certain perspective. So I think that a lot of times we've heard examples quite famously 
like safety equipment or the testing of cars has traditionally only been done with men. And so actually our cars are safe for women as they are for men. No, they're not. Because actually the people who were doing the testing were men. They only thought to test it on men and male bodies. Similarly, in medical spheres, often women's health and women's bodies, women's physiology hasn't been as well investigated because the people doing the science aren't asking the right questions because they're often not women. I've used gender as an example, but that is the same. If we only have people from certain backgrounds asking questions, then we won't be finding out answers that are relevant to the wider society. So it's really important that there's a diversity of input and diversity of thought when we are doing science. Absolutely. I didn't realise how much in terms of health, ethnicity makes such a big difference for clinical trials and things like that. And very often, historically, stuff hasn't been taken on board. I think it's getting better now, but it's so important. And in terms of inclusion initiatives at the British Science Association, what types of inclusion initiatives are in place? So the BSA, like I said, we are very much about making science relevant and connected. And so all of our work, both internally in terms of how we do things within the organization, and then also in terms of how we work on very externally, but we have got inclusion in mind. So if we've got a panel of speakers, we're intentional about making sure that there's diversity in the voices of those speakers and who we are inviting to speak. It shouldn't be that there's just a panel of so white men talking as the ex- experts at the front. In terms of the programs I'm in charge of in, in education, the Crest Awards is pretty special, I suppose. There's lots of initiatives out there encouraging people to get into STEM. But for as long as I have worked at the BSA um, and been involved with it, Crest has had a 50-50 split between boys and girls taking part, which I think is unique in being a STEM initiative like that. And I think in part it is because Breast is about young people doing projects that interest them, that are relevant to their lives, and they see the project process through from beginning to end. So it's a very real world way of working. You ask a question and you do a full project, you think, oh, what my aims what am I going to do? You test stuff out, you fail or you maybe try again, things a little bit, you have an outcome and then you communicate that outcome to other people, which is how science works in the real world, how engineering works in the real world. And I think that relevant context is really important for girls, particularly lots of the evidence says that, that girls really like to see the real world application of what they're learning. So that is really great. And Crest is one of the big ways that we've been trying to increase the diversity of young people getting involved with STEM. I mentioned that we have a network of schools in challenging circumstances, which is called the Engage Network. And through that, we are working with teachers, specifically helping them think about who are the underrepresented young people in their classrooms. And how can they better support and how can we support them to involve those young people in STEM? Because the research 
shows that the majority of young people will discount science as a career aspiration before the age of 10. That early, wow. That early, yeah. They think it's important. They think it's fun. They think it's interesting. They think their parents value it. But is it for people like them? No. And they've decided that before they're 10. And so we've done a huge amount of work thinking about how we engage with that primary age group and supporting primary teachers to challenge the stereotype, to use language and words that are focusing on the internal attributes of scientists. So uh, there's some really nice work from Northumbria University looking at what are the attributes that scientists and engineers, people working in STEM, have. And they identified 16 attributes, which are things like being hardworking, being curious, being good communicators, being creative. And those are things that young people can really identify with, whether they think of them as being sciencey or not. And so if we start to use those kinds of words around scientists and science and notice those attributes in our young people, that can really help them develop in their science identity and feel this is people like me. We give them the opportunity to do projects and investigate questions and get hands-on. That can help them feel like, oh, this is someone like me. And if we, at the end of that process, give them a certificate in their hand and say, you have been recognised for your scienceiness and your work in science, then obviously that also then helps them feel like this is for people like me. So that's a big part of what we do in the education team. Um, working with schools who are working with is underrepresented young people to really try and involve them more. We give out grants to them. So for involvement in British Science Week and in Crest, we give out small grants of just a few hundred pounds that really make the difference between teachers being able to get their kids involved or not get involved in those things. And we're constantly looking for new and creative ways to get young people who are more underrepresented involved in science. So outside of the British Science Education team, we have some really interesting bits of work working with communities. So for example, we have something called the Ideas Fund, where communities lead the question where they come up with an idea that they want to investigate in their community around the area of mental health. And then they get linked up with university researchers who will then work with them on that. And quite a few of those are young people, but they're also wider communities. So yeah, there's a bunch of work across the BSA to try and involve people from all walks of life in science. Well, it's great. And I'm seeing a lot more things on my radar, or we do a lot of stuff with soapbox science and organisations like that. So every year we do a soapbox science feature issue. And that's amazing how that has grown and grown and grown. So they started, we started 10 years ago. So it's round about the same time. I'm not sure if they were going first. But that's amazing. And that's now gone international as well. The scale and reach of that is phenomenal, what they've achieved. Yeah. I think the key, though, is trying to involve normal, everyday people in what questions get asked and how those questions are asked. And it not just being about the experts broadcasting their science. I think the involvement of everyday, normal people in the processes of science is crucial. And I strongly believe that every child is born a natural scientist. Like if you look at how young children approach the world, 
all they're doing is asking questions, or you know, sometimes frustratingly so. And you know, they are investigating the world. They're trying to make sense of the world. They're experimenting. Play is a form of science. It's all about experimentation and, and modeling and trial and error. And so actually, as they grow, unfortunately, something about the way that our education system works often dissuades them away from what are essentially very, very solid scientific investigative people. So we are all natural scientists. I think we have a cultural problem of people thinking, oh, I'm not sciencey or I'm, I'm never good at maths. Therefore, that sense of not being that kind of a person. But if you are a person, you are a scientist in a sense because you're constantly making sense of the world around you all the time. Yeah, with choices <laughs> as well and options. So we had to do combined science at GCSE, but then obviously at A-level it's optional. But do you think there's an element of the choices that we're, we're making as well that influences people opting in or opting out? Because obviously if you have to narrow your choices right down for A-level for argument's sake... It forces you to pick. I remember loving science, but I think, well, it's not the, what I'm best at. So then you get forced to pick the things that you perceive yourself to be best at. Yeah, absolutely. And you've hit on something that is, is a really a crucial gatekeeping moment, I suppose, which is around GCSE choices. So at the moment in the UK, you can be entered for a whole bunch of different options with science. So you, there's a single GCSE, there's double science, and then there's triple science. And all the evidence points to the fact that triple science is the route that people then tend to go on to do. Often people would take kids on A-level courses if they haven't done triple science. So it's a real blocker if you don't have access to triple science. Now, in order to do triple science, you need somebody that is physics, chemistry, and biology. You need to have a trained teacher who is competent and confident in teaching those subjects to that level and there is a massive recruitment and retention issue in teaching generally but very specifically around physics and so there is not an equitable access to triple science and I was thinking about this recently I was thinking there's no the subject where we go do you know what you can do a sort of watered down version you don't go, we can do English, but you'll only do like a bit of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but for some reason, science, it's okay. Somewhere along the line, we've made this distinction between people who do science and people who don't very early on, which I think is really unhelpful. And it's not equitable. The better schools, the more privileged schools are more likely to have the staff to deliver the kinds of courses which then open up doors yeah. and that's not fair. So we have done some work. So part of the British Science Association, we have a policy team and they run the all-party parliamentary group on equity in STEM. And one of the things that they flagged through that was this inequity around triple science. Um, and that's something that will need to be addressed. And why is it important for us to mark International Day of Girls and Women in Science, which is coming up on the 11th of February? And what will you be doing yeah. to celebrate this year, Maria? So I think these kinds of days, whether it's International Day of Girls and Women in Science, it's, it's always good to shine a light, right? To highlight something. The world is busy and it's really helpful to have a day where people shine a light on an issue. 
girls and women are the single biggest underrepresented group in science. Therefore, I think we need at least a day <laughs> to shine a light on. And they're also the ones that over the years, women haven't been celebrated for the work that they have done. Women haven't been in the history books until Jess Wade did her work on Wikipedia. They didn't have Wikipedia entries. And I think it's super, super important. What will I be doing to celebrate? I feel like in a sense, every day is International Day of Girls and Women in Science for me. Yay! <laughs> we like that. I always say to people, I'll have a cake to celebrate, but that's my solution to most things or my way of celebrating most <laughs> I'll have a cake. Ends up in a lot of cake. <laughs> so I will, no doubt, I'll be on socials and I'll probably have some thought. I will shine a light on the things that are important and I will try and find out a little bit more about women in science who I didn't know about before and try and remember their names because even as a woman in science sometimes you hear stories and yet you still somehow because you've only ever heard the names of men you don't remember the women's names as easily so my intention is to when I hear about an awesome woman in science whether that's contemporary or historical is to remember their name and to go back and keep remembering their name and tell people about them. That's what I'll be doing to celebrate. Sounds like a plan. And finally, mm-hmm. uh, what's coming up next for you? What are you looking forward to? What do the Womanthology listeners need to know about that you're going to be working on? Yeah, so coming up, British Science Week is in March. And my research tells me that that is the 8th to the 17th of March. Yeah, absolutely. So British Science Week is an opportunity for anyone to get involved with science, just a big call to action. So keep an eye out. If you are doing anything with a school, then support your schools in that. Um, and then for me, we've got a few projects with the Cross Awards scheme this year. So last year we developed some kit boxes with support from the NCR Foundation, which we worked with some schools in challenging circumstances in Scotland and piloted them. We've now got funding for schools in our Engage network to get some of those boxes. I'm really looking forward to those going out. It's enabling primary teachers to deliver our best activities and making it super easy for them. They literally just have to bring out a drawer and, and it's all organised for them. They don't have to do all the prep. I'd love to see more funding going into those boxes because, yeah, so I'd love to see those expand. We've got some funding to develop up some primary boxes as well, some for age five to seven, so early years and boxes. Yeah, so I'm looking forward to seeing those take shape and getting them out into the world. Amazing. If there's any corporates listening, I know we have corporates listening, if they would like to help fund those, I'm sure that they can get in touch and they can get in touch with Maria. We've got some beautiful photos and some excellent impact information if anyone's interested. <laughs> so, right, so Womanthology audience. So, Maria, an absolute pleasure speaking with you today. Thank you so much. Can we stay in touch with you and can we follow your progress and can we keep helping and supporting you? Yeah, totally. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Maria Rossini, and she is Head of Education at the British Science Association. Thank you, Janet. That's wonderful. In this section of the show, we hear about all the contributors who have shared their stories in our new written issue. The stories include Vanessa Madhu, 
PhD student at the EPSRC Centre for Doctoral Training in Modern Statistics and Statistical Machine Learning at Imperial College London. Vanessa discusses her transition from maths into science and statistics and why science is better when it's shared. Dr Maria Asmanova, lecturer in medicinal chemistry at the University of Bradford, explains the work she's doing at the interface between chemistry and biology. She also shares details of the up-and-coming outreach work she will be coordinating as part of Soapbox Science Bradford and beyond. And finally, Professor Tara Shears, Vice President for Science and Innovation at the Institute of Physics, explains why the skill sets used in physics to break ideas down into smaller components are transferable to so many other areas of life. She also shares her desire for physics to be seen as a normal and joyful activity that's welcoming for everyone. Do check out our website, womanthology.co.uk, to read the full stories. Sadly, that's all we have time for this episode. Thank you so much for listening. And remember, if you want to support what we do, then share the link for the show on social media or also follow the show. Your feedback is really important, so please rate and review the show in your podcast app. Do join us for the next podcast episode and written issue where we will feature epic women in energy and sustainability.